This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. There he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave, by golly. And uh, a little nippy out here. We'll cover that at the bottom of the hour. We are, of course, in the Mellon Law Studio, protected by crime prevention 24-7-365, and brought to you by all of our wonderful sponsors and those who donate to us. So we appreciate all of that. Of course, we've got a great Wednesday lined up all the time with our good friend, Ted Yoho, who is uh, here with us, uh, undergoing the same duress that many of us are going under right now who are out in the countryside, and that's the pollen. And uh You'll probably hear it in each of our voices. This is a pollen, pine pollen, I presume. That's the one we have around here since uh, Florida has so many pine trees. But um, we'll cover that a little bit more specifically at the bottom of the hour. Um, but the interesting things about Ted is that he just uh, told me before we went on the air that he's headed out to Tokyo, Japan, to talk there about uh, foreign relations and how the United States government relates to the various challenges, shall we say, that are going on around the world at any given moment. So perhaps that's what we'll start out with now. Um, That is most interesting to you because it's most interesting to us. And it's an unsolvable problem. Let's face it, ever since I've been around long enough and old enough to understand uh, our engagement, if you will, in the world, you just can't isolate for all kinds of reasons. And we have been the big dog on the block for quite a while. And one of the ironies now of this horrible Pacific theater war that my father was in, many other men like him, is that now our enemy is our ally and a very important ally. So uh, Ted has written an uh, editorial piece that yet to be published uh, for politically sensitive reasons, if you might imagine that. We'll let him elaborate on that. But it's uh, always the joker in the deck. Uh, the truth sort of gets uh, put aside because somebody's feelings might get hurt, so to speak. And boy, we got a lot of that going on. So, Ted, I hope I don't, want to, steal, I don't want to steal your thunder there, but good morning. Uh, let's, you want to start off with your piece and let's go through it. The thing that interested me about it was um, in the paragraph where you said, as we, I agree, U.S. foreign policy has been lacking in continuity from one administration to the next. Therefore, Biden sending mixed messages must unnerve our allies. Is that a good place to pick up? Oh, that, that's it. You, you, you're right on right there. I mean, that's one of the big things I've noticed uh, when I went to Congress and after being there for eight years and talking to world leaders from around the world, it was the uncertainty of what comes next and uh, what, pro- what programs are going to stay in place. And if you look at the task of the federal government, the primary the primary role of the federal government is national security. Well, you can't have strong national security if you don't have strong alliances around the world. And I don't mean interfering with other nations. 
And um, the, the founding fathers were just so, so smart. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. There was divine intervention, no doubt, because men are simply not that smart to come up with a document like that. But George Washington talked about honest and open and fair trade with all nations, uh, entanglement with no nations. We missed the mark on that. And you brought up um, after World War II, we became the lone world superpower. And uh, I still remember Bill Clinton saying back in the 90s that America can no longer afford to be the lone world superpower. And I think since that time period, you've seen this erosion of American foreign policy, because if you go back to previous presidents and the two that really stick out are Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who had sailed the great white fleet around the, the world. And his motto was walk softly, but carry a big stick. And then President Reagan's peace through strength. And we projected that. And there's been what we call a world peace dividend since World War II. There have been outbreaks. There was the Korea War. There was the Vietnamese War. Uh, there was Bosnia, Desert Storm, all these. But when you look at a world confrontation, we have not had that since the end of World War II. And uh, there's a lot of articles written out there. I've written some. Uh, the last one I wrote that got published was a prelude to World War III. And let's hope we never see it. But the stars are aligning. Uh, certain things are happening. And that's what you're seeing now with this article. And this article, um, since I'm going to Japan, and one of the big topics is American-Japanese uh, relationships. Um, and since World War II, Japan has been pretty much a pacifist nation. They dismantled their um, military manufacturing capacity. And they kept enough military production for, you know, um, homeland security, patrolling their, um, their, their, their shores and their borders and for humanitarian purposes. But since former Prime Minister Abe, uh, before he was assassinated, he got the Constitution changed or the policies changed to where they could go from what we call a strictly defensive uh, posture on their military to a counter strike. And that means that they can hit back, you know, if somebody were to attack them, they could hit back to that country. But they've changed that to not just counter strike, but first strike capabilities. And so if you think for the 70 years since World War II, roughly, uh, Japan has been this peaceful nation, but then you see what's going on with North Korea. I mean, they just launched the ICBM that can carry a nuclear warhead and they're building up their arsenal from 40 to 50 estimated nuclear warheads now to 200 by the year 2027. That's only four years from now. And so you see this massive threat up there and then you see what Russia has done to Ukraine and uh, Japan uh, gets a lot of their energy from Russia and Japan has sided with us uh, and NATO with the relationship between Western countries uh, protecting Ukraine. And then China is the big one in the back. They're just kind of watching this all play out as they build up their blue water Navy at an unprecedented pace. And then in that article, I talk about for the first time ever, we've got Iranian warships in the Western hemisphere docking in Brazil, who just reelected their um, previous president, President Lulu who was in prison for corruption, he got out, 
they reelected him and he's aligned with the socialists and the communists and the Iranians. And then you have that in Venezuela, you have it in Bolivia, you have it in Cuba and uh, Chile and Argentina are slanting that way too. And then you take Central America, um, they're leaning to the left. And so we've got some precarious times. And the last thing I was, um, Iranian warships are planning to be on both sides of the Panama Canal. And the thing that causes pause to Japan is U.S. foreign policy or lack of continuity. You know, they see us more worried about wokeism, um, uh, equity, these things, instead of national security, which is the number one um, task of our federal government. And so that's the reason they're going for only from a 1% uh, um, the expenditure of their budget on military, they're doubling it to 2%. And so this has got a lot of countries up in arms, like, oh, look at how aggressive they're being. Now they're being smart. And, um, you know, the question that has come up is, will America, can we count on them? Will they be there if we get invaded by, you know, North Korea, uh, if we get invaded by China, Russia, or all three of them getting up to us together? So we're in some precarious times and um, we'll field any questions you want. Well, one of the reactions I have is that uh, what in the world does North Korea need with 200 nuclear warheads? I mean, who cares about what they are? I mean, who wants North Korea for crying out loud? Um, this is just the uh, you'd have to reason he's a surrogate for a larger force behind him supporting him. And well, you would think that um, <clears throat> it was interesting because I was up in D.C., um, and there was a meeting with the Japanese U.S. military, and one of the guys spoke about Mike Pompeo, who when he went over and talked to Kim Jong-un, he said he thanked us for having a presence in South Korea because he felt it was a, 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 an offensive, uh, a pushback against China invading North Korea. So he's more worried about North Korea or about China than he is about South Korea. I think the things you see them, you know, shooting missiles when um, the, the U.S. and South Korean forces do their military games. I think he uses that for an opportunity to justify building up his nuclear arsenal. And I argued this point often on foreign affairs and when I went on these congressional delegation trips. You know, who's trying to take over North Korea? What do they have that we want? I mean, the best example is look at a picture of the Korean Peninsula. At night, you see South Korea fully lit like a modern city. North Korea is dark. They, I mean, they're so underdeveloped. But the thing you have to understand about the Kim Jong-un regime and his father and his grandfather is there's the belief that these people ascended from heaven or descended from heaven and that they're godly appointed in their eyes of uh, a deity. And they are deities in that society. And so I don't think anybody's really pushing or pulling his strings. I think he's just posturing because he doesn't know how to participate in the in the real world. Here's a guy that's he was educated in Europe and Switzerland, but the the Korean people they don't know the outside world very well. So it's going to be interesting how this plays out. And it's kind of to be honest with you, like you said, why do they need 200 warheads? And um, it's pretty scary. Well, it's um, perplexing and 
I think that the solution, but I don't think we'll get there, is for us to once again assume the position of the alpha dog. And you and I both know what the alpha dog means in the natural world. There will be a herd leader. Uh, there'll be somebody. I mean, the herd will create the alpha dog. The alpha dog doesn't step forward. They want to have somebody that leads their group. And who else is better served to be the alpha dog than we are? But well, we've, we've shirked that responsibility. Well, we would be that, that one to fill that, and I would prefer it's us but only if we have a clear, decisive message of who we are. You know, entanglement with no, no nations. I think that's a great concept that we should have followed. But, yeah, I want to trade with all nations. I don't, I don't want to take you over. If you look at our previous wars in the recent history, just starting from World War II, you have Japan, Germany, and then you look at Vietnam and South Korea. We had wars with all those. But yet today, they're our largest trading partners. They're in the top 16 trading partners, Vietnam being the 16th, uh, Japan being number two, Germany, I think, is number five, South Korea is number six. And so if you're going to have a war and kill a lot of people and do a lot of damage and cost a lot of money, but the end result is you're going to be trading partners, let's figure out a way to get beyond the conflict and let's just look at our trade. It's just ridiculous what we're doing. And think of the energy the resources that are are paid for military and uh, the harm it does to our young men and women. If you look at Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, I was against that war. I don't think Bush should have gone in there. I think there was better ways that we could have dealt with that. But our young men and women answered the call to protect this nation. And you got to applaud them for that. But then after 20 years, uh, Biden just abruptly pulls us out. And so I know these people have to be thinking, why did I go over there? Why did I lose body parts? Why did my best friend get killed? Why did a, my son go over there and get killed? You know, these questions go through Americans' mind, and I think we need to think about that <clears throat> before we go into the next uh, conflict. And let's hope we have some adults in the room. And uh, Don with Ted who's with us today and um, <laughs> suffering the uh, onslaught of the pollen, as many of us are. Yeah, I'm looking at the pollen index. It's pretty high right now. Yeah, the pollen yeah. index, I'll get to that at the bottom of the hour. It's out there. But um, talking about the perplexing problem of international relations and how they really can end up having your friend once was your enemy. And we have that situation with Japan. You know, China is in so many ways, I've been watching it in terms of uh, the latest uh, hoopla about the um, – theft of our intellectual property. Have you run across that in your conversations in D.C.? Oh, I mean, it's it's like a broken record. It's like Groundhog Days. It was, it's estimated that they steal, they steal intellectual property over $600 billion a year. $600 billion a year. And this is, um, I mean, you, you can just research this real quickly. I think there's a Micron Advanced Technologies. Um, it's an American company. They make a chip that goes into a motherboard. Well, coming out of China, there's a motherboard that has an identical chip, but it was made in China. And they tracked it down. There was a, um, a technician that worked at Micron that stole that stuff, went to China. And these people, they're tasked with doing this, the Chinese government. Uh, if you come to America, you're expected to steal. They have the Thousand Talents program to where they go into our universities and our research labs and uh, 
um, uh, manufacturing plants, industrial espionage. They actually steal that. I had a, a, a horse client that worked for one of the brewery companies, and he did the equipment that made the cans. And there's a, a place in Gainesville where they make the top of the cans that go on the beer can. Well, he was in China, and after about six months, China had their own machine that was identical to the machine he had, and they found out the guy that worked there in China that was Chinese was working at an American factory, downloaded all the specs, went over to China. And so they do this over and over again. And this is just, they don't have the moral, the definition of morals like we do in most Western nations that between right and wrong, this is all for you do this to get ahead. This is what we want to do. And the Chinese government rewards that. Well, it's, uh, (laughs) and then everything is turned around and made there and sent back here and we pay the price and they pay the cheap labor if they pay it at all. It's a, it's a real catch 22 riddle. That's what annoys a lot of us is that, um, and I think this is what, was appealing about Trump is, you know, well, let's make it here and employ our people and stop our reliance on this uh, cheap labor elsewhere. But uh, that didn't last long. I suspect there's a lot of connections. I I read just a minute or two ago before the show that apparently there's paychecks coming out of China to the Biden family. Uh, Has that been? Well, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. No, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And why in the heck, that's not being investigated with the fervor and the rabidness of um, the way they went after Trump. Um, you know, they went after Trump when he and Melania came down Trump Towers the day they announced for uh, running for president. And they never backed off and they got more um, more vicious in their attacks. But on this one, with the Biden family, it's so obvious, yet it's being ignored because they don't want to go there because they got the pieces in place they want. And, um, you know, you look back, you, you've got to understand that this is all by design. David Petraeus was one of our generals. Of course, he got, um, went through a scandal. Um, and he, he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he wrote a book. And he was talking about manufacturing should be thought of as not made in America, but made in North America. And so you have your um, Mexico-Canada corridor. And this is where NAFTA came in, and now it's USMCA, where there's free access from Mexico all the way up to Canada. So they wanted to make us more service-oriented. And then they took manufacturing, and they put it in the Asian countries. The financial um, is in European. And so they split the world up into three sectors. And this goes to the World Economic Forum and your Klaus Schwab's and all that that are pushing this one-world government. We as the people, especially in America, we need to stand up because it's government by we the people, and we're far removed from that. And that that whole narrative needs to change. Well, I see a lot of criticism from time to time, even on the chat box here, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. And it, it has to be because of what you just said. We've given up our uh, self-interest. Uh, uh, sovereignty. Our sovereignty, yeah. Yeah. How does that get, uh, how does that get its own life? It's, it seems like it's got its own legs now. It's like a cancer, you know, it just, it, I mean, if you research this, this goes back to the, probably the 1700s, there is this group that they wanted control. And, and it's, this is a flaw of mankind. There's always going to be people that are fighting to be the alpha dog and they think their way is best and they're going to do whatever they can. 
And then the 1800s got a little bit more. And then the 1900s, you know, it became more evident. And it used to be, in fact, I was at the first CFR breakfast I went to, Council on Foreign Relations. I wanted to go just to hear what they said. And I was quiet to a point. And uh, they said something. And I says, well, it sounds like you guys are, are uh, um, you know, what you just said is you're, it's the one world government. And they, they looked at each other. And there are young kids in there. They're younger than I was. Not that I'm young. And uh, they said, oh, look, we got one of the conspiracy one worlders in here. And, and when he said that, I just laughed. I says, you must be self-conscious of that because you brought that up. I didn't bring that up. And, um, you know, they know that's what they're doing. And so now, you know, if you fast forward to the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab has come out and said, by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy. That's CFR talk. I mean, that's the one world government. And uh, people don't think that's happening, but it's happening. Look what they're trying to do to our to our money. Look at what they did to the Netherlands, the farmers over in the Netherlands, and what they did in in Canada. Look what they're doing in Canada on guns up there. Um, uh, Trudeau up there is he's one of their biggest advocates. Are these our people? I, you were that, you are these our people you were in that room with? Yeah, yeah, these are Americans. Are they members of Congress? Were they? No, no, these were CFR members. But you know who was in that was um, Susan Rice. Susan really? Rice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. She's somebody that I, she shouldn't even be around government. As crooked as that lady, and, and she's just a tool. You go back to the Benghazi hearing. She was the mouthpiece for Hillary Clinton and the Obama. Oh, yeah. Saying that the cause of Benghazi was that. Video. D-rated video, and that yeah. guy that did the video wound up going to prison for a short period of time, and and nothing happens to her, and she fomented and, and spread a lie like that, and there is no accountability on that. Um, in the old days, they would have ripped her tongue out. But she was in the CFR meeting, huh? Yeah, she sure was. So the CFR hangs around D.C. and tries to influence the politicians? They're, based up, they're based up there in D.C., and they try to influence a politician, I'm sure, every chance they get, right? Well, they're they're one of those, I guess, think tanks um, that that do these real subtle messaging and help draft policies to achieve their end goal. And, you know, if you look at and read Michael Pillsbury's book, The 100-Year Marathon, um, and you see how America went out of its way to give space technology um, to China, to give them um, um, computer technology to China, research in um, biomedical and biomedicines and all that stuff. We went out of our way to help China. Of course, back then, it was to help China become a counter to Russia because we were more concerned about Russia. And the whole thought was that China would come and become more westernized which they did anything but, and they just, they're very smart. They're very calculated. And we were very dumb, and uh, we're paying the price for it now. Well, CFR comes up from time to time in the chat here that people advocate we get away from it, but from what you're saying, it's a think tank. It's not really a part of the congressional committee world, Uh, yet I'm sure there are people in Congress who are, well, how shall I say? Oh, no, they are. They have these these luncheons and dinners and retreats, and they'll invite members of the military, members of the uh, all all branches of government, 
but probably more importantly, the bureaucracy, because they know that bureaucracy is the one and the, the agencies, they're the ones that are really in control up there. And if they can get a sympathetic ear on a policy, like let's let China have access to our latest computer chip for this reason, you know, they do those things. And I don't know what they see their end game because China is not going to bow down to anybody. The only way they're going to bow down is if they're, you know, if it's a World War II scenario, you know, it's like Japan or Germany. They have no other choice but to concede. And I hope we never see that. And so for these people in the CFR, they're more than a, a think tank. They're insipidously working behind the scenes to push their agenda. And they're, they've been effective at it. What's in it for them? What are they gaining? Do they get cut kickbacks or how's that? What do you think is going on? Well, you it's know, like ideologically driven? You know how it is when you're um, at the maybe trying out for sports at the beginning of the season. Everybody thinks they're going to be the star. They're going to be the, the captain of the team. And as the season progresses, people start falling off and you get just to a few left. Well, I think the CFR thinks it, the, the, the playing field is getting narrower and narrower. And there's fewer pay players or positions at the top. And they see them as the ones at the top. And I think they fall right in line with the world economic form that is the one world government. That's what I see. So they're not losing influence. They're actually gaining influence. No, we're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're achieving their goal. And it's kind of like, you know, you look at the Obamas, they're part of that. They're members of the CFR. Hillary Clinton is. Um, and I know, so I think the Bushes were. Yeah, I think they're members of the CFR. A lot of our military brass are members of the CFR. It's one thing to be a member to where you can just go and show up and see what's going on so you can fight against it. But to go there and being consumed by that and working to help them establish that. I think you think of uh, David Petraeus who wrote the book. Um, I forget the name of the book, but it was he was saying how great the CFR was. And they basically wanted, it says this in the book, they wanted to split up the world into three segments, the Americas, the European, and the Asians. America would be service-oriented, which is what we, we are today. We're not known as our manufacturing powerhouse we used to be. Europe is more cons um, considered the money uh, um, financial sector of the world, and Asia is the powerhouse in manufacturing. So they've got it split up into three segments now. And that goes to what they were talking about 50, 60 years ago. Welcome to Ted Yoho. Fascinating discussion. And, and those of you who've been wanting us to get around to talking about Council on Foreign Relations, we just did a pretty good discussion of it. And, uh, of course, this is all recorded. You may share this show. You may see it on many, many different platforms and listen to it on many, many different platforms. You know, platforms. what's interesting, too, is this started with the League of Nations after, I think, it was World War One. That then we went into the UN after World War II. So the League of Nations became the UN. And then under uh, Bernischke, or I can't remember, I, the guy that was under Carter, the Secretary of State, I think it was, um, Brzezinski, uh, they started the Trilateral co Commission. Trilateral. There's three segments of that. And that again falls into line with the Americas, the European, and the Asian. And uh, this is all something that's been. It's like a cancer. It's just growing and growing and growing. And of course, if it's a large cancerous tumor, uh, by the time you find it, it's too late. 
Well, we're going to take a break here for the weather to bomb the hour. And uh, it's nippy, and we're hoping we don't get a frost. Yeah. When we get back, we'll talk about that in a moment. Talking with our former representative, uh, Ted Yoho, who really has stayed active and remains active, on his way to Tokyo soon right. to uh, discuss. Maybe we'll talk about that when we get back. So um, stay tuned. We're going to do Ward's Weather after a uh, break for our sponsors and be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. This is Ward Scott. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Now we have got Ward's weather report. Compliments of Lewis Oil. Chevron. And, uh, well, we're a little bit nervous because spring has sprung because spring thinks it is spring. You know, we flipped the time and all that sort of stuff. And now we're looking at tonight's low here in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country. And it's going to go down to 34. Now, 34 really and we're going to get from frost and frost is going to not work with what nature has already provided. So right now it's 43 degrees 
It's not going to get up very high today, probably maybe nudge uh, uh, into the middle 60s. And that's going to be the best we get. The tree pollen is off the charts right now, very high. And uh, we are suffering from that. Some of us who do work outside from time to time. Meanwhile, we have a new atmospheric river, which is drenching California. And uh, we have a, a two-sided storm coming in uh, to the middle and northern part of the United States. So they're going to get some more winter. So what do they say about March? It goes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb. Seems like I remember that saying something. Right. And uh, that certainly is looking like uh, we're not even, we don't know how it's going to go out right in the middle of it right now. Going with Ted Yoho, looking at the chat line. If you have a comment you want to uh, put in here for us, I'll take a look at it um, and um, pass it along for our discussion. And we've been talking really about foreign affairs because Ted has kept himself involved with that. Um, I think now we're going to talk about what he is going to be doing next week as he goes to Japan. So uh, can we talk about that a little bit and what you might anticipate and what you sort of have planned for that trip? Yeah, um, we've got an agenda. It's a, it's a real um, busy packed agenda. Carolyn, uh, she's going with me. We fly into Tokyo. We're going to be there for five days and we go to Kyoto and we're meeting with legislatures, previous legislators, uh, think tanks, business leaders talking about U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, from trade to sharing technology. Um, trade is going to be one of the big ones. And then, of course, the military relationship. You know, Japan, if you look at Japan, South Korea, and us, it is a very strong relationship. It's, it's one of the strongest we have outside. It's probably the strongest we have outside of NATO. And it's been a counter to aggression in that area. And it's kept, it's, it's kept the peace dividend. Uh, but things have changed. When America, when America grows weak, um, you know, other other bad actors show up, and uh, you know it's the law of nature. Of, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. So if nobody's there to keep the world peace or the world order, we'll say um, of the norms that have been agreed on since nineteen or since uh, the Second World War, things change, and you get people saying, "Well, my way is better," and that's what we're seeing with China and North Korea. Is you know they're they're going to keep doing what they're doing, and the concern is what what Russia is doing. You know, Vladimir Putin is trying to rebuild Mother Russia and wants to go down as a czar in history, the one that restored Russia. And, of course, Xi Jinping, um, his goal is to conquer the world because he feels the Han, the Han species on the planet is the superior species of all mankind. And it's uh, endowed by the Communist Party because they don't have a deity, but they just think they're the ones that should be in control. And there's a principle called the Thucydian principle. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It comes out of ancient times. And it's when you have a, a, a major power and it's in a state of decline and you have a rising power. When they cross lines, there's a conflict. And the, the people out there are saying that America and China says it all the time. We're a declining power. They're a rising power. power. And so when we cross that line, there will be a conflict and um, again, I don't, I hope we never see that. Um, but there's some, there's some serious movements going on around the world. And so that's going to be part of our talk when we go over there. 
And uh, they, they asked me, I thought it was interesting. They said, well, we're going to take you to Hiroshima and Nagasaki if it's not going to be too traumatic for you. And I says, no, it won't be traumatic for me at all. I said, I think this is something everybody should go to to remember the horrors of war to help remind us why we don't want to get into another conflict. And that's why we need to um, keep our statues around to remind us of history lest we fail to remember history and we shall repeat history. And I think these are good things that we need to keep out. And that's why the tearing down of the U.S. statues, because it offended somebody, I think was the wrong way instead of reminding people why those statues are there so that we don't make those same mistakes. Well, every generation rewrites its ethics. I know that. And they the sure do. Is, they, the problem is they don't learn anything from the past because they don't study it. And if it doesn't fit their rewriting of ethics, then they erase it. And yeah. that, that's, that's, I fault the education system for that uh, tremendously. I think we've got such a failed education system uh, involved with all the wrong issues. And it's just, uh, it's been hijacked, you know, by um, ideology, you know, with this, this argument. And I think that, you know, somehow, some way, we've got to get it back to what it's all about, and that is finding and teaching high standards of whatever you're doing, and and um, allowing open discussions and all that. We've talked about it, but um, the 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 issue in in, in Japan is uh, very interesting because do they how that invitation work? Are you going as a how how, how do they see your a relationship to the U.S. now, if I may pri- uh, go into that a little bit. They see me as a former member of Congress, and, you know, I was the chairman of the Asia-Pacific Subcommittee for our Congress, so I, I made very strong relationships, and I don't know if I've shared with you, I got honored by the Emperor of Tokyo uh, of Japan, Emperor Norohito, who is a grandson of Hirohito of World War II. Uh, he awarded me with the Order of the Rising Sun, which is the highest civilian um, recognition you can get from a nation um, and not being a citizen. And so, you know, we had that strong relationship with them. We spoke up in just the things that you've heard me talk about here. You know, I don't want to dominate any nation, but I'm not going to play second fiddle to any nation. We can be strong together in our trade. We can be strong together in our military, but don't use it against me and don't use trade. And, and you know, trade policies they go both ways as far as being beneficial, but they can go both ways as far as uh, uh, being inflammatory. And um, Obama's, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, has got a lot of people uh, up in the air because it gives subsidies to companies that shouldn't be getting them, mainly in our, if they're producing in the United States. So it's putting some companies in these Asian countries or other countries at a disadvantage because if you look at just the battery sector, um, our government has put in, I forget how many billions of dollars in subsidies for batteries being manufactured in, in our country, which I don't see as a problem other than I don't like subsidies. But yet these countries like South Korea and Japan that have a high and a very effective battery market, all of a sudden they're going to be dinged on tariffs to bring their batteries in. So what they're doing is they're developing plants here. So it's ruffled some feathers. But over time, it'll work out. I think we should be out of the business of subsidies unless it's a national emergency. 
And I would do tax incentives like get countries out of China, you know, anywhere but China, near countries, short, friendly countries, and do that manufacturing base outside of China. So you erode their their economic engine. And uh, so there's going to be a lot of talk like that. So I got invited from my past experience, and uh, I've been up to speak several times at different Japanese events up there, as I have South Korean, Taiwanese, and Vietnam. Right. You, I remember the Vietnam trip. Um, and Mongolia. Just looking at some of the chat comments here. The perception is, and I think I agree with what I've been studying, is um, the distraction the liberals have caused in our financial stability by embedding the woke agenda in. Yeah. Would you, can you talk about that? I don't think the woke agenda was around when you were there, was it? No, it was, it was just starting. And I'm, I'm glad I was, I, I left when I did. Um, I, I just don't tolerate that kind of garbage. You know, it's kind of like AOC telling people, um, let's defund the police force. And if you need to, if you're, if you're hungry, it's okay to shoplift. It's not okay to shoplift. It's morally wrong. We've got programs we can deal with that. And so I don't do well in those situations where what they're telling people to do, you know, if you're a male, you can call yourself a female. No, you can't. You're a male. Deal with it. And, you know, you're probably I'm probably going to get hating mail through you on that. But, you know, there's some simple basic facts in life and people should learn how to deal with those things. Uh, but don't change a society based on that. And if you look at Sun Valley Bank, um, the one that collapsed out there, um, there it's pointing to the it's their wokeism that has led to a lot of the collapse in that because they were they weren't making money they were investing in the wrong things and uh you know more power to them because that's the free market working there and i feel bad for people that put their money in there i know one guy got 350 million dollars out before it collapsed because he saw it was going to collapse um it's somebody I know that works for him, and he says this thing's going to collapse, and he's pulled, he pulled his money out. And, um, you know, there's always going to be those people that are in the know, and then there's going to be the ones that are left behind. And um, that's always going to be the way it is in society. And with this left agenda, they're trying to create everybody equal. Well, that's not human nature. And uh, there'll be a price to pay for that. Ignorance. In your foreign relations uh, experiences, did you have any, of course, we, we probably share the same opinion about NAFTA and how bad it was for us. That's terrible. Um, what about Mexico? We've got these people in the news here who are, um, you know, well, just ambushed and killed by the cartels. How dangerous? Do you study that or have you talked about that? Oh, yeah. What's your yeah. Um, Mexico is a near partner. Uh, there's two faces of Mexico. There is the Mexico that, uh, and, and there's a lot of great Mexicans down there and in this country. But when you look at the government, there's the Mex- the government official face of being an ally of America. And then there is the narco face, and it's the narco face that controls Mexico. It's a it's a it's a drug state is really what it is, and I think we should deal with it as such. I think the border should be should be should be blocked. The border between Mexico and the United States should be blocked. All of our borders should be blocked and allow legal immigration and legal trade. 
And one of the things that we pushed, and this was before the fentanyl got so bad coming over with the cartels, which it's always been coming over with the cartels, um, the, the mules that they bring over, um, they're forced to do that if they want entry in, into the United States. And the drug cartels have retaliation against that person bringing drugs in here. If they don't deliver, they'll kill their family, and they do. And um, um, a lot of produce comes out of, out of Mexico that is in direct competition with Florida because of the similar growing season. And I can give you report after report, trailer load after trailer load, whether it's pineapples, uh, cucumbers, green peppers, squash, tomatoes that are laden with drugs. And my plan was, if that happens, that vendor, that producer is prohibited from shipping to America um, for five years, $250,000 fine. The rigs are, are uh, impounded and they will not ship products here. And uh, I think we need to do that. And, um, you know, the fentanyl, um, over 95% of the fentanyl that comes in this country comes through our southwest border. 95% of that. And that comes from the DEA. If we know that, and Mexico is allowing that, and they claim to want to be a partner of ours, if I've got a neighbor living next to me that's selling drugs to my kids, I don't want them as a partner because it's weakening my family. And if it weakens my family, it's going to weaken them. The fallout will be a weaker in Mexico. And um, I think we should follow the lines of some of these other countries. I sat with Prime Minister um, Lee of Singapore, and it's it's a small country, about 5.3 million people. And I says, do you have a drug problem here? He says, Congressman, we're a small nation. 3.3 of our citizens are Singaporeans. The others are immigrants. If we have a drug problem here, it'll go out of control. So if you're caught dealing drugs in our in our our, our, our nation, it is it, it's the death penalty. And when I was down there, they had two Australians that are getting ready to put to, um, uh, put to death. And I, I don't want to be harsh like that, but I think at some point in time, you have to send a strong message. If you're caught bringing fentanyl into this country, it's the death penalty, period. You don't have to do it long. You just have to do it. And it's like Obama drawing the red line with Syria. He drew it. Assad stepped over it. We did nothing until Trump came along. And I think you need to let them know you're serious. And uh, when you start acting that way, the fentanyl will dry up. And understand fentanyl is coming, the, the majority of it is coming out of China. The precursors are coming out of China, going to Mexico. China is recreating the opium wars that they're still ashamed of from the 1800s. And they're doing the opium wars in America. And it's a way to weaken our nation. And so there's a geopolitical involvement in there. And Mexico knows this. So Mexico is allowing this because it's such a large revenue for the Mexican government. And they are not our friends. Um, the Mexican people, like I said, I've got a lot of Mexicans I know. They're great people, good family people. But there's that element that is tainting the whole image of Mexico. And it needs to be brought down with a heavy hand, period. How much is, is it embedded? Yeah, how much is it? Uh, how much of it is, let's just be kind of blunt here. How much of it is actually the government? Because I hear that the government is, well, you know, when I was in Mexico, we were riding behind a bus with um, 
you couldn't see the back of the bus because of the exhaust coming out of the bus. Yeah. And that's how it was in uh, Guadalajara. And it was so polluted. And so uh, we asked the, we asked our cab driver, well, what in the heck? You guys are killing yourselves with this air that's coming out of the back of this bus. Don't you have any pollution controls? He says, oh, yeah, we have it. But uh, the government is paid off. So we don't have it. And, you know, and I, I yeah, I just and he just was saying this the way this is the way it works. You See, know, that's why government this is the way it works. Because we'll put in these policies. Well, this would be good for the environment if you do that. And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they check the boxes off, but they don't adhere to it. But on face value, they look like they're great partners, but they're not doing it. We give them so much money in foreign assistance that that should be stopped. The war on drugs should end. We've spent over $20 trillion on the war on drugs since Nixon or Bush put that in. I think it was Nixon back in the 70s. And we've got more drugs in America now than we ever have. Stop that program because it's not working. Do something else. Put boots on the ground at the borders. And these people that come in, uh, you know, if I say something now, run for a future office, this will come back to home. <laughs> but there needs to be a clear message sent that you're not bringing drugs into my country, period. Well, problem is we don't ever uh, mean anything we say. No, we, we don't. We say whatever comes out of, uh, off the top of our head. And, uh, you know, Biden is a good example. I mean, he just says whatever needs to be said. I'm one of these guys. I think we discussed this last time. Whatever the public here thinking tells about it. I think the guy's got these political instincts that have been honed from years of being a political animal in D.C. And he knows probably everybody there. And, you know, he's been around long enough to know what this lie applies at this moment and won't apply at the next moment. And that's the way he lives. Um, you know, come on. And we let him get away with it. And the press is a, a collaborator in all this. They so, are. They are. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you lose trust in your government, when you lose trust in the media, you lose trust in your government agencies like the CDC. You look at what Fauci did and, and some of these other ones. Um, um, it's just bad. I mean, and it, it leads to a point where there will be there will be an adjustment. And uh, I think that adjustment is probably going to be sooner than later. Um, we'll see how things play out in this next election. Uh, the thing, you know, I sent you some articles um, talking about the fentanyl. One was from Mark Green. Right. And how they're, they're inflamed. Mark Green's a congressman, Army Ranger out of Tennessee. Uh, inflamed that we have such a bad problem with fentanyl. Well, when I was in Congress, you know, like I was there for the eight years, I think second or third year, we started to hear a lot about fentanyl. They had hearings there and how appalled everybody was. And we were going to do all these programs the root of the problem is fentanyl coming into this country. We know what it is. Do you have the backbone to stop it? So Mark Green is going to go down to the border and do hearings on fentanyl and tell everybody how bad it is. And we were talking about that eight years ago. I don't need talk. I need action. And this is where I think they that somebody's coming across. Whatever fentanyl they bring in, I think you ought to feed it to them. <laughs> Let's and talk a moment. Uh, we got a few minutes left. Let's talk a moment about the Freedom Caucus and yeah. what influence they are having right now in the House. You know, that's going to be interesting to play out. Uh, they had some strong gains. There's four or five members that are on appropriations, and I've got to meet with probably three of those. 
and uh, you know they're on appropriations. They've got a Freedom Caucus mindset of cutting spending, reducing spending, you know, uh, getting you know transparency and accountability. Now the onus is on them; they have to perform. And so let's see what they come out with. Um, I know Kevin McCarthy was saying that there's no way we can balance the budget in 10 years, which, you know, he's the wrong person to be there. If you have an, an attitude like that, as you and I know, if you, if you espouse those words, that's a defeatist attitude. So that means why should I even try to balance the budget if I don't think it's possible in 10 years? They better think, by God, they better balance it in 10 years because I don't think we have 10 years to go on the way we are. Um, well, no, no. I think anybody with any sense and um, uh, seriously, with any sense. With any sense, yeah. Um, is there, there's discussion, of course, right now about the banking system, of course, and from what I can determine, what the government has decided to do de facto, they haven't said it yet, but what this basically amounts to is the, the government uh, taking over the banks um, in many, many ways, and that they're insuring losses of people who are taking risks, which is, that's the definition of capitalism. You take risks, and you suffer a loss. You pick yourself up off the floor and learn from it, and all the guys I know who had losses have had gains, and sure. they've learned from the losses, and the gains about weigh the losses, and they take the responsibility of the risk. And, and I know, I know there's those people who declare bankruptcy. Uh, that's another issue, but, but basically in a way the bank has declared bankruptcy and been covered by the federal government. Well, it's kind of like our federal government. What's the cause of them spending more money if they can just go print more money without any consequences. And it's interesting because our nation, when it was formed, there was a large debate by Hamilton and others to put bankruptcy laws in place. And I think we're the first country that put bankruptcy laws in the constitution to where they understood, you know, coming out of Adam Smith, the wealth of nations, capitalism and the benefit to society. And you can't have people invest if the burden of the, the, the failure falls all on them. If there's not a way to work through the court system to, um, satisfy your debtors, you know, through the bankruptcy laws instead of the, the debtors coming in and just taking everything instead of letting you reorganize, rebuild, and paying them off. Because that really is one of the fundamental fabrics uh, and building blocks of a capitalistic society. Um, and and so these banks, if the FDIC is going to come in and bail them out, and it's interesting, I read an article the other day, I think there's $14 trillion deposited but yet the FDIC only has enough money in reserves to bail out, I don't know, maybe, and that wasn't even a trillion dollars. So there's a big shortage. So if everybody collapses all at once, everybody's bankrupt. There is no money to pay off people. You'd get pennies on the dollar. And um, the idea is that not everybody's going to fail at the same time. And Let's hope that doesn't, but we've seen other nations do that. The Weimar Republic of uh, World War II, that failed. That money became worthless. They were burning it you know, for heating. And, you know, can that happen in America? Let's hope not. And then if we go to digital currency, the government's in charge, but is it really the government? Or is it going to be a Federal Reserve Board, which I think we ought to get rid of the Federal Reserve and put that that 
process of controlling our money into the hands of elected officials that if they're not doing it right, throw them out. Of course, this comes down to having a well-educated, informed electorate. And if you don't have a good educational system, you're not going to have the latter or the former. That's a pretty good summation there, right? Uh, right, right to the point. Um, I, uh, I'll give you an A on that one, Ted. Uh, <laughs> Heck, I'm going to go back to college. <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm listening to you is um, from years of studying these things, you can get right to the the the, uh, the story and and convey it pretty pretty succinctly. Unfortunately, the the riddle in all of this, and we keep coming back to it, it all is contingent upon leadership. And if we've got a weak collegiate system that doesn't allow leadership to emerge through honest exchange of ideas and defending those ideas, we've got weak law schools. Those things are about as uh, woke as they can possibly be. Um, Where are we going to get it from? Um, The old idea of the wise farmer who got his wisdom from, from nature going to serve uh, in the public uh, for a while, you might be the last one of those. I mean, you did that. Basically, that's what you are. And um, but but you got in there with a bunch of cronies who were anything but that, and they outnumbered um, you. That they 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 had vastly outnumbered you. I would suspect. Well, they do, and it changes so rapidly. What did they tell me that uh, when I was up there last this last week, they said that 51 or 56 percent of the members serving today in Congress um, in, in the Republican side have never served in the majority. So over 50 percent of the people that are serving in the Republican Congress have not been there for four years because last time we were we had the majority was what, 20 going into 2018, 19. And then we lost it in 2020. Um, is that right? Yeah, that's when we lost it. And, uh, 2019. And, uh, and so these people change all the time and they come up and there's a learning curve and all that. Probably one of the best books I've heard and read. It's the three lives of James Madison, genius, partisan, and president. And it was funny because they talked about the three types of people that serve in Congress or that want to serve. And, um, you know, it's just, in fact, I got it pulled up right here. There's a thing that Madison said. Uh, he was talking, I don't want to take up your time here. I'll, I'll get it to you next time. Well, 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 yeah, we're about out of time, Ted. Now, I assume it will be uh, in, un, in, inaccessible in Tokyo, although um, next Wednesday, although you did broadcast, I think, from Vietnam. I did. did, not? I did. Yeah. So I'll let you uh Communicate with me about that, what you want to do. But uh, if you figure that out, uh, you may not be available our hour. Be interesting, though. Be very interesting. And um, but as now, I'm considering you uh, unavailable next Wednesday. But um, you never know. You, you uh, never know. You always uh, you always check in. So you're uh, uh, you're uh, I'll keep posted. Yeah. Keep me posted. Great conversation. Wish you a good trip. It's very interesting. When you get back, for sure, we want a reportage. That'd be interesting. Sure. And um, let's hope it doesn't uh, frost tonight, and uh, we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. And I know Atlanta and that area north is already getting it. So, uh, um, but you're not probably um, got cattle out in the pasture either. So, uh, right. <laughs> makes a little bit of difference. 
So thank you all for congratulating us on the show today. I think it was a great show today, too. And uh, have a great day. And uh, Ted, take care, buddy. Thank you very take much. Take care, Lord. Have a great day. Okay. Warthog Command Center out.